said, I think it's important to pull that report again. <laughs> okay, um, so to the, the meat of what I'm saying, um, I'm going to structure my lecture around these th the, this main idea that Iraq as a unitary state uh, no longer exists. I think that's quite clear. Um, I think many people could say that. Um, but just to explain that since the rise of the Islamic State, there has been a, a crystallization of Iraq into three de facto components, into these three broad brush components that anthropologists, sociologists said would be a disaster. Political scientists, too, said that this would result in ethnic cleansing, which it arguably has done. Um, but rather than it come about by, a, I suppose, a managed divorce or a managed federalization of the state as some had envisaged it could, this has been a chaotic formation caused through insurgency and the rise of the Islamic State and everything that we've seen since then. So whatever has happened, we've seen the crystallization of Iraq into three de facto states. The Kurdistan region in the north, what I'm calling Baghdad Basra, I haven't really figured out a better name for the government of Iraq as it controls Baghdad Basra. If anyone has one, then let me know because I need to get it into the book. Um, I'm not buying this game of calling it the Republic of Sumer or anything like that. That just doesn't really sound right. So Baghdad Basra for now. And of course, the Islamic State in the middle. I'm not going to go down the route of saying so-called Islamic State or Islamic State group or Islamic State organization. I'm going to refer to them as they refer to themselves so as the Islamic State for now uh, without trying to confer any legitimacy on them. Um, I'm going to ask how durable are these different parts of Iraq at this point. And there's a lot of wishful thinking in the policy world that, you know, if somehow Islamic State will, you know, it will sort of evaporate. People, though, will get fed up of it. It will collapse under its own weight. The political economy won't work. One day, Abu Bakr won't be there and all of his minions are gone. But is that a reasonable question? Is that a reasonable proposition to, to have at this point? if we look at what the alternatives are for those people in this territory if, if Islamic State wasn't there. If we look at the durability of the Kurdistan region, there are lots of very excitable writing right now, especially about the Kurds of Iraq, whether it's in the FT, just seen another article that's come out in, um, uh, written by Eliza Marcus and Andrew Apostolo, I was reading on the way here, talking about the need for a Kurdistan state right now. But how ready are the Kurds to embrace full independence, full sovereignty, how strong is their economy to support such a move, what are the geopolitical conditioning, the conditions around them to allow that to happen. And then realities in Baghdad Basra, what does the world look like from the presidency of Fouad Massoum or the Prime Minister's office of Haider Abadi, as they're, especially Haider Abadi, struggling to cope with not only a whole range of different political parties that operate in that world, but this vast range of Shia militias that, now, that are now there and the heavy hand of Iran and the IRGC. Um, and how do they view what is happening in Mosul, in Ambar, in Ramadi, and also in Erbil and Soleimaniya? Arguably from the perspective of Baghdad Basra, especially the Shia perspective of Baghdad Basra, Mosul and Erbil are turning into different countries as every day goes by. So I think we're talking about, when we're talking about Iraq now, we're talking of a, a tale of three regions, uh, if we want to be poetic about it. These three regions have emerged. Okay, Kurdistan was there for a long time before. Islamic State has become a reality, the longevity of which we still are not terribly sure about. You know, Baghdad Basra is beginning to see, arguably, 
a different way forward as well. I'm going to start with just a few points about where, how I'm looking at Islamic State of Iraq and our sham ISIS or the Islamic State. Um, and I'd very much like to be challenged. It's very difficult, of course, to do research on the Islamic State. You've had some excellent lectures uh, in, in, the, in this series that have really unpicked a lot of the, the different forces that underpin them. Uh, but still, nobody is going to go to Mosul, or maybe the, the, the German journalists managed to get into Iraq and do some work there, but I'm not sure that the Ethics Committee or the Safety Committee of Oxford will, will allow any of you guys to go to Iraq and Mosul to do your very important research there, even though it would be very interesting. Um, well, there are people trying, but you know... And, <laughs> So, um, so we, a lot of this is from, from the outside, but a lot can be inferred, and especially from, from pictures. Um, I'll just explain the photographs that are up here uh, for, for the benefits of the podcast. The two photographs of, um, of, let's not call them ISIS at this point, let's call them parading soldiers. Um, if you remove the black outfits and the balaclavas and the black flags, you replace them with Western military combats and fatigues, that would look pretty much like a, a group of Western soldiers marching around as Western soldiers would do. And this is an important fact. This, these photographs show that ISIS, or Islamic State now, and their fighters are a different beast to what Islamic State of Iraq was before them, what Al-Qaeda Iraq was before them. You would never see Al-Qaeda Iraq doing this. They were terrorists. They were, had their grainy video cams watching bombs go off with the music in the background. These guys are now in the open. They are very, very different. It doesn't mean that they've given up on the old techniques of terrorism, letting off their car bombs. Absolutely not. But they have different capabilities that they have augmented their, their, their organizations with. And of course, we have a photograph there of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in the Grand Mosque of Mosul proclaiming the announcement of the Islamic State last year. Now, Islamic State of Iraq and Asham made many differences. They learned many lessons from the mistakes of Zarqawi and then of ISI after them. Key amongst those lessons were, was, not, were, were, was not allowing the Americans or any opponents to again divide them as they'd been divided in 2007-8 by the Awakening Initiative that started off in Ambar and was then supported by the Americans or by the effects of the surge and everything that happened then. What the Americans did so effectively well in 2007-8 was to get right in the middle of the ISI organization. They managed to break off the really hardcore jihadists that were often foreign as well, away from the Iraqi nationalist insurgency that was, of course, Iraqi, fighting for very different things. They recognized that there were differences of approach between the two, and they got right in the middle of that relationship and blew it apart. They had their reconcilables, those groups that they would support to be Sahwat, uh, awakening sons of Iraq, uh, that they would pay, they would equip, they would arm, they would make promises to as well. And they had the irreconcilables, those fighters that could never be reconciled to, to not fighting the Americans, to not opposing the government of Iraq. And those irreconcilables found themselves on the hit list of General Stanley McChrystal and the JSOC organization. I'm facing a, 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 a targeted killing on an almost industrial scale. 
they learned that lesson extremely well. Abu Bakr learned this, Kambokka, maybe other places too, as did the leadership of the insurgency that was in prison that we've known, now know so much about from excellent work by Wilmerkamps and other people. Just what a, a breeding ground these prison camps became and how not only ideology became um, crystallized, but how techniques, how new methods uh, were being discussed. And key amongst that was, we don't have to know who all these people are, apart from, on the whole, a lot of them are dead now, but on the whole, these guys are Iraqi. This is a picture of one of the early leadership councils of ISIS. You won't find the foreign fighters here, on the, pretty much not. These are Iraqis. Most of them as well would have very strong links back into the security organizations of Saddam Hussein. Now, this is where we start to get into the debate about is ISIS Ba'athist, is it not? We have to go back to the 1990s and understand that the Ba'ath was really being hollowed out already by the effects of sanctions, by Saddam Hussein's own policies, by the faith campaign, uh, by the retribalization of Iraqi society. The Ba'ath was becoming weaker in Iraq in the 1990s and in some ways becoming more Islamized as well. So the distinction between Ba'athist and being Islamist it's beginning to erode in late 1990s Iraq anyway. So I'm not sure that it's terribly useful to say that ISIS was this amalgam of ISI jihadists that had all got out of prison, that had survived McChrystal and Petraeus, of uh, Ba'athist remnants that came out and disaffected Sahwat that were no longer being paid. I think it's the, the, the borders between these groups are much more flexible and fluid than perhaps we should, uh, than perhaps we, we recognize. But by having this as an Iraqi organization, it makes it a little bit more bulletproof against external manipulation. And this has been one of the strengths of ISIS, that this has not been a foreign-imposed al-Qaeda initiative on Iraqi society, on proud Iraqi society that has its own notions of what Iraq is, what, how Iraq will be. In some ways, this is more of a homegrown, deeply-rooted entity and at what point did ISIS make the move from being an insurgent movement, a terrorist movement, racketeering movement in Mosul, to actually being, showing signs of being a social movement? That's a really big change compared to what ISI, Al-Qaeda Iraq, was before. ISIS as a social movement that perhaps does, dare we say it, dare I say it, represents some of the wishes and aspirations and demands and expectations of people in Ambar, in Nineveh, in Diyala, uh, in Salah Hadin, and across into Syria, because the alternative is actually not attractive. The alternative that um, people, that especially political elites, but Sunnis in general, were exposed to under Nuri al-Maliki was suppression, oppression, the Hawija massacres 2000, uh, uh, after the Americans left, um, the arrest, the detention, the reported rapes of Sunni Arab women by Shia soldiers. Whether it's true or not, it's accepted as truth in that community. The alternative then is very, very bad compared to at least working with these guys who do seem to make public services work, who do, once they've gone through their initial um, taking of territory and terrorizing the hell out of everyone and executing all of those that they've got slight suspicions about, do seem to make towns and villages and everywhere else work according to their own quite strict rules, but work all the same. 
And I'd just put it to you that if you were a Sunni Arab, man or woman, of between 20 and 50 in these territories, faced with the question in 2013-14, would you be in ISIS or not? You probably would be in ISIS, whether it was a voluntary decision, and it could well be, or whether it's because you had no choice, which is certainly the case as well. So I'd, I'd just um, I'd reflect upon the question of ISIS, not only as a political insurgent guerrilla movement, but as a, a social movement because of, largely because of the fact that it has very, very deep Iraqi roots. So we get to then to the really interesting question that government departments across the West are asking about what do you actually have to do to get rid of the Islamic State. There's a fantastic article in the Financial Times today, I think, which is talking about the British role in bombing. And um, it's, it's meant to be in Cameron's head as he's trying to figure this out. More bombs are needed, but not quite sure why. We need to do something there, very evil. Bombings, bombing works. To, and it's, it's a very funny thing. I'm not really doing it justice. Please go back and read it. But it gets to the scale of the problem because there are no good ideas about how you actually stop what is now a social movement from developing deeper roots and from being a very powerful force, at least locally, even if they cannot go into Kurdistan now, even if they cannot go to Baghdad, uh, if their world of expansion is the Sunni Arab world, it still presents a very significant question about what you actually do about them now that Western governments, after Paris, seem to be so determined to degrade and remove them, as Obama would say, to destroy them, uh, as, as Putin would say, perhaps. And we look at the scale of the problem, and we go back again to the Islamic State of Iraq, the final manifestation of Al-Qaeda Iraq uh, in 2006, 7, 8. And to go to the bottom here, ISI nearly won. We forget this, but by 2006, 2007, the Islamic State of Iraq was declaring control of territory to the northwest of Baghdad. They were putting Baghdad under a state of siege almost. They were bringing civil war to the streets of Baghdad. They were extremely dangerous and on the verge of destabilizing the government of Iraq once and for all, which is why the Americans became so enamored with the awakening movement in Anbar. It's why they jumped on that bandwagon of trying to make more awakening movements. It's why they sent Petraeus back to have the surge in Baghdad and in Anbar, because it was so, so close that ISI could actually achieve what, what had seemed the impossible and destabilize the government to the point of toppling. But look at what they were, look at what Islamic State of Iraq was compared to ISIS. It was a much, much smaller organization. This was an insurgent terrorist organization. It had far less capabilities. It didn't have the range of Humvees and up-armored Humvees and captured tanks and lots of heavy weapons and the huge numbers of soldiers that ISIS had. It was a much less capable organization. It didn't have the popular support. They had to watch their backs with Sunni Arab Iraqi populations as much as they had to watch their fronts with Shias. They didn't really control territory. Yes, they were carving out parts of northwest Baghdad and Diyala, but they didn't have great amounts of territory, and they were controlling this territory at night. You know, it was a toing and froing with the Iraqi security forces. They didn't have oil, they didn't have resources, they didn't really have a significant finance to fund what they were doing, not, not to the extent that ISIS did. 
And of course, as I said, not, the, the equipment was lacking. But this is an important point. They were facing far stronger Iraqi security forces. This was at a time when the ISF was seen as being capable. They had been trained up by the Americans. They had special forces trained by the American special forces. They had British advisors all over the place. And when the ISF struggled, as they sometimes did, they could then call in the overwhelmingly powerful US forces that were all over the place as well. And there was nothing the Americans liked more than going helping their local partners on the ground in a fight with Osama bin Laden's men, which is how it was seen. And yet they still nearly won. Now if we jump forward to ISIS and Abu Bakr, this really emphasizes the differences of today. Iraq 2007-8 is a different world to Iraq 2014-15. And the Americans are not there and Qasem Soleimani is running Baghdad. That's a basic, basic difference. But start to look at what this means for ISIS versus ISI. ISIS is much, much larger. They did their breaking the walls campaign. They regrouped fighters. They brought in their alliance with, with Ba'athist organizations, however you want to describe them. They reached out to Sahwat, those that Sahwat that could be reconciled and would give their allegiance to Abu Bakr were accepted. Those who weren't were attacked. They're much, much, much more capable. Yes, they were struggling in 2008-9. Maliki was doing quite well against them. So then they went to Syria in 2011. They used the strategic depth of the Syrian civil war to regroup, rearm, retrain, and come back. And they came back as a... Yes, people were frightened of them. I mean, the reports of, from Western Mosul 2013 about what ISIS is doing don't make pleasant reading. But they were still seen as as being better than the ISF forces that were stationed up there. And that's a key difference, a relative difference. They now have much more territory. I mean, it's often described as the size of the British Isles. These maps of ISIS-controlled territory drive me a little bit mad, how they show all of this, you know, basically they're following the river valleys. I mean, if we draw a map of Iraq following the river valleys, then that too would look like a bifurcated disaster. Um, if we actually look at it in terms of the area of land that they control... This is a huge area that has strategic depth between Iraq and Syria. And again, just to give a spoiler away, it, if you cannot defeat ISIS in one place, you need to defeat it in two in Syria as well as in Iraq. Otherwise, you get this toing and froing effect that has been used already by ISIS to good effect in 2008-9. They have resources. Yes, they do export oil. Um, there's a very um, compelling report, I think came out today or yesterday, illustrating how ISIS smuggles oil through Zakho into Turkey. I'm not terribly sure if it's true. I'm sure that the Kurds would say it's not. Uh, but there are smuggling channels, smuggling routes that, are keeping, that keeps ISIS oil flowing. But then they don't necessarily need that huge amount of money anyway. They have a war economy. This is a very different world that ISIS lives in. And I think personally, if we want to start looking at ISIS political economy, we have to understand it as a devolved political economy it, co it um, co-ops the local economy of regions, of towns, of collectives, of areas, uh, and leaves them to their own devices. Um, there's perhaps some centralized military functions, certainly centralized command and control of key military units. But in terms of their economy, this is a much more localized thing that we're talking about that has the cherry on the pie with oil as well. But still, 
they have financial capability, and that's before we get onto the, the donor side of, of this equation too. They have much more equipment. This is not just the equipment that they captured when they took all of these ISF, US-supplied bases in Iraq in 2014. This is equipment on the Syrian side as well. So they've got this fantastic amalgam of lots of really old and robust Russian equipment, all this new fancy American stuff as well. I mean, they're not short of military material, um, including the things that are very important to them, which are the technicals, the Humvees, the, the, the fast-moving pickups. But these last points are important now. They've got all of those capabilities, they've got the territory, got the money, but they're facing an opponent that is just far weaker than it ever was before. The Iraqi security forces following, as shown by the collapse of Mosul and since, are a shadow of what they were in 2007-8. And even more importantly, they don't have the Americans ready to come in and rescue the day when things start going badly wrong. And it's that lack of a serious American presence that really exposes the ISF as the Iranians can't perform that role, and the Heshta Shabi, the Shia militia, the popular mobilization forces, create often more trouble than they resolve. So can they win? Okay, they've had some setbacks. Kobani was a very big setback over in Syria, of course. In Iraq, they've had some setbacks as well, and Ramadi looks like it's under a lot of pressure today. But the question is, what does winning look like for Islamic State? I'm not convinced that winning really is the raising of the black flags in Baghdad, uh, the destruction of Najaf and Kabul. I'm sure that's sort of a bit of a fantasy-winning world, but I don't think that's necessarily in the minds of their military strategists from the Ba'ath, who will have a very different tactical view of how things will go. Mere survival right now, <coughs> continued survival, drawing uh, enemy opponents into their, into, into their own spheres, fighting spheres, will be what's good enough and perhaps continuing to consolidate, expand, as their motto goes, into North Africa and other places, for now, is what they want. So I think there's a useful discussion about defining what winning looks like for the Islamic State. However, they are not, if we can't fully define what winning is, we can say that they're not losing. And as long as they're not losing, then, you know, from their perspective, technically, they may be winning. Just to um, then go a little bit further in explaining to Prime Minister Cameron, if he is listening to the podcast, Eugene, I'm sure he will be, um, about, about the problem of opposing Islamic State. Um, I, I wrote an article in International Affairs a few years ago that basically made the point that whatever you throw at Islamic State will make the situation worse unless the force that defeats them is a Sunni Arab military force. It sounds pretty basic, um, but the, the, the rationale is clear. If you use Kurds, it becomes an ethnic war. You know, and in Mosul and other places, Kurds don't necessarily have the best rep. If you use Shia, and Shia militia, Saib al-Haq, or whatever militia we talk about, that's even worse. I mean, that's exactly what ISIS wants. So it then raises the question about, well, who do you actually use? And in, in my own article in International Affairs, I got to the very uncomfortable conclusion that, you know, all, all of this talk about, you know, we need to find a, a narrative, a message to undermine Islamic State from the inside out is actually a little bit misleading right now. This is the talk that came from 
2007-8 and the Sahwat campaign and messaging to those reconcilables you could reach, you know, it all became a little bit fuzzy and, and splits happened and ISI was finished. But they learned that lesson. They learned the lesson of not letting propaganda in in that way and of controlling populations with brutal effectiveness. So when there has been a potential break in the ranks of al-Qaeda, uh, in the ranks of ISIS from a tribe or something like that, the retribution brought on that tribe, let's take the Shaitat tribe in Derazor in Syria, has been cataclysmic for that tribe and anybody around it. So you then have to be astonishingly convinced, totally and utterly convinced, if you are a tribe, for example, wanting to break from ISIS, that once the break happens, you will be protected. And this is what happened in 2007-8. The message went out, ISI is not for you, you can join us, we will look after you. That was the Americans saying that, and on the whole, they did that, usually. But now, the message is going out in this world, they break, and there is nobody to protect them in this environment. So this is not going to happen. And if it does happen, it's a recipe for a, uh, a slaughter. And so you get to the uncomfortable conclusion that you need Sunni Arabs to fight Sunni Arabs. It doesn't sound great. I mean, it's, um, it, it, it sounds very bad in my own ears saying it. But you get to that uncomfortable conclusion. But there isn't a Sunni Arab army in the world that can do this right now. None of the states of the region are going to man up an army to do this. They couldn't. And so you get to the point where you're talking about another Western military occupation, liberate land, build a non-ISIS Sunni Arab territory. And this is just the realms of fantasy and speculation that also has its own terrible, terrible effects, as we've seen when Western military forces enter Iraq. In short, there's no good idea. There is no good way forward for combating ISIS at this moment. And if we take the local forces, ISAF are sectarian now. And they are largely the support units now for the Shia militia. They've shown that they're unable to hold Jazeera. Even Beji is going backwards and forwards every day. The Peshmerga, the much-vaunted Kurdish mountain fighters, I mean, these guys were made out to be superhuman before 2014. Um, I was with Nechevan Barzani just after Mosul fell. And people at that level of the Kurdish leadership were not thinking that ISIS were going to come for them. And if they were thinking about ISIS, it was that they would be really easy to beat. What they were actually thinking was that the ISF has been exposed. Maliki has been shown to be weak. It was about Maliki for them, about the end of Maliki. But they got the shock of their lives when a month later, ISIS nearly took our bill. And the Peshmerga was shown to be brave, but organizationally wanting, very poorly equipped, and they didn't have an answer for the overwhelming assaults that came against them. They've reorganized now, but again, Peshmerga are good for defending Kurdistan. It's a basic ethnic statement. They start to go out of Kurdistan, you have a problem. YPG, PKK, these are the most effective fighters against the Islamic State in Syria, certainly, and they've been fighting in Iraq. But they have a problem that they're not from Iraq, so you run into a, a very distinct problem with them, and of course, PKK creates all sorts of diplomatic problems for um, the Barzani-led um, government in Erbil and their relations with the Kurds. So that's a bit of a problem. And we see these problems in Sinjar now. Sinjar's taken, but there are tensions and contestations going on between YPG, PKK and the KDP. 
and of course Shia militias. Shia militias can oppose Islamic State, but this creates the sectarian conflict that the Islamic State so desires. And arguably, a Sebal al-Haq are more than capable of being as brutal to those around them that they liberate as ISIS is as well. So the end result is that there is not an answer about who can oppose the Islamic State on the ground. But that doesn't stop our political leaders talking about the Kurds. Um, they're fighting Kobani, they're carving out a territory in Syria. The fact that they are the seemingly the democratic success story of Iraq um, has come now to, to full bloom. They are seen as the future in, in many Western eyes. But the context is, is that, as I said, they had a near-death experience. Erbil nearly fell, and they, they nearly fell from many different angles of attack, uh, and it required moving over Peshmerga from Suleimaniyah to protect, and it ultimately it was air attacks, firstly from the Iranians, although that's not terribly well known, and then the Americans that kept ISIS at bay and allowed the Kurds to regroup. The Kurdistan region then survived that moment and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, I suppose is correct for them. And they've gone on from strength to strength for the first time since ever, I think maybe someone can correct me. But from 2014, we see the Kurds of Iraq in particular, for the first time I think in their history, become politically aligned with Western powers in a very deep and meaningful way. Okay, it happened sort of against Saddam, they were quite convenient but they were really still quite embarrassing and nobody quite knew how to handle them because did they, didn't they want independence and what did Turkey think about that? 2014 is really different. You get a real meeting of minds and eyes between Kurdish leaders and Western leaders in a way that I don't think has happened before. And this changes the integrity of the Kurdistan region, the nature of it, its future of it. They took the territory, the disputed territories that they had always craved, which created the problem in, okay, so in, in, the, in the wider world of, of Iraqi politics, what happens to my ESRC research grant isn't terribly important, but it did create a problem for me because it was called Iraq's Disputed Territories in Comparative Perspective. And then all of a sudden, these territories are no longer disputed. The Kurds do a fait accompli, um, take 90% of the territories that they wanted, ISIS took the other 10%, nobody's arguing about it. The government of Iraq is so shocked that they don't even mention that the Kurds have taken Kirkuk and are pumping oil from it that ISIS has the other bit. So I had to have some um, conversations with the ESRC and persuaded them that this was still a valid project, um, which, which thankfully they, they accepted, although they said, please don't go to Mosul, which was so fine. Um, we also then see an alignment that has been going on since 2007 of the Kurds with a major regional power. And this has been the other um, Achilles heel of the Kurds, in Iraq in particular, that... Yes, they are dirty mountain fighters. Sometimes they are in the Western interests, but everyone hates them, and especially Turkey. Prime Minister Erdogan, when he was Prime Minister, said several years ago he would oppose the existence of an independent Kurdistan even if it happened in Argentina. Now, that's a, a rare moment of humor for the Turkish pre president. But, you know, you, you, got, you, got the, you got the message then that he really, didn't, he really didn't want to see that happen. But now, 2007 onwards, this changes. The relationship fundamentally changes for for reasons that I think are quite clear. The relationship with Baghdad fell apart. Um, the Kurds were seen as effective allies against PKK. And, you know, you're probably better off controlling the Kurds economically and politically than, than trying to just crush them. But the relationship becomes a fruitful one. Turkey has 
energy deficiency. The Kurds help supply and get over that energy deficiency. They have security concerns. The Kurds play loyal proxies and allies. It becomes a close relationship at many different levels. So then the Kurds have alignment with the West. They've removed their big opponent. They've actually turned their big opponent, Turkey, into their biggest ally. That's another one gone. Iran's been quite quiet as Iran is with Kurds, but you know they seem to be okay with this as well. We'll get to them afterwards. And what we see from 2014 then is a suspension of hostilities with the Abadi government. Well, with Maliki, Maliki's sort of out of the equation, but then Abadi tries to be a little bit more um, pacifying towards the Kurds in his relationship with them in terms of the oil deals, the economy, which we'll talk about in a second. And so the pieces start to look very different then around the integrity of Kurdistan going forward. But it's an integrity, it's a consolidation, it's a, it's a trajectory that is built upon the existence of ISIS. And this is where it becomes a really odd world for the, Kurd, for the Kurdish leadership. That yes, you're fighting ISIS, you, you hate them, they're killing off your Peshmerga, you, you want to secure your border, you need to fight ISIS because the Americans quite like that as well, you've got the Americans based in their bill. So, so it's, um, it's a, 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 but if ISIS isn't there, if tomorrow, whatever reason, Mosul falls, Raqqa falls, Abu Bakr is no more, and all of these fighters in ISIS say sorry, then it becomes a very different place for the Kurdish leadership of Rambazani in particular. All of a sudden, ownership of Kirkuk becomes important again. Attention goes back to the disputed territories. Ownership of this 90% of this land becomes critically important. Turkey begins to change its position because the, the dynamics of Iraq have changed again. And do the Americans really want to be basing out of Erbil uh, in a de facto sense supporting the autonomy of the Kurds when there's no need for them to be there anymore? The world looks different when ISIS isn't there from the, Kurdish pers from the perspective of the Kurds. The maps are quite useful here just to, for the podcast people. These are some maps um, of northern Iraq just to show these areas that we're talking about. The dark grey area, this is a map from a book I wrote in 2009 on Kirkuk. The dark grey area is pretty much the approbated territory of the Kurdistan region. This is legal Kurdistan region as of the constitution of Iraq in 2005. The light grey area are the disputed territories, the lands that the Kurds claimed. And they took pretty much all of that land, well, pretty much all of it, apart from Sinjar and areas to the north of the Hamri Mountains in 2014, and now they would claim that they've taken Sinjar as well. So you can see it adds a huge amount of land. Most of the problem, um, I've seen some quite stark Kurdish maps that basically suggest that the, the um, eastern side would just be Kurdish and, you know, we'll, we'll blow the bridges and forget the stuff on the western side. Um, ethnic cleansing across these lines is never going to be uh, a peaceful endeavour. And this is the... The map of the, this is not a map of Kurdistan and the disputed territories. This is a map of Kurdistan as seen by Kurdish politicians. They didn't recognize the disputed territories. This was their land as far as they saw it. And this is their maximalist position, which shows Kurdistan stretching all the way down the Iranian border, further south than Baghdad. It's a big, big, big block of land. Now, they're not going to get anywhere near that amount, but this is a the Kurdish imagination on, on paper. I mean, I've seen maps of Kurdistan uh, stretching from Persian Gulf all the way to 
the Mediterranean and probably taking in a bit of the Caspian as well. But you know, I don't think that's going to happen either. But you know, the, the, the imagination is really quite, quite, quite vivid. And then we had the front line. Um, this was, I photographed that in the Ministry of Peshmerga in 2014. They did know that I was doing it. I wasn't doing it in a, with a dodgy pen or anything like that. Um, but you see then where the, the front line went. So how closely it mirrors what happened there, and then how they expanded to, to take this territory. But critically, they took Kirkuk. You can see Kirkuk over, over here. And they made very sure that they took in the infrastructure of the Kirkuk oil fields, the three domes of the oil field and all of the infrastructure there. And then two, three months later, they turned the valves and oil that would have gone to Beji, then started entering the Kurdish pipeline system which we'll get to in a second, and moving out through Chaham. So we have the expanded Kurdistan region. I can run through this quite quickly. Um, it sounded great for them. Apart from their boundary went from about 800, 750 kilometers to suddenly it went to 1,000 kilometers with a really nasty enemy on the other side that they didn't have the training, the posture, the skills to combat. And, that's, and they're still at that point. The boundary between Kurdistan and Islamic State is still extremely shaky and is still rather porous. There are flashpoints, Sinjar, Hamdaniya, Jalaula. Jalaula's calm, Sinjar now seems to be finished. Hamdaniya and the Nineveh Plains is quite dangerous. But I get to this point again. I wouldn't like to say that, and especially on the podcast with, um, uh, with, with, with prominent politicians listening, that there was a Kurdish Islamic State engagement to, to, to ensure... Uh, to recognize each other. To a certain degree, I think it happened naturally as an organic thing. There were two neighbors rubbing along with each other. Contacts were definitely made. But it's partly this thing, again, that, you know, Kurdistan needs the Islamic State. There's no other way of putting it. Uh, the Islamic State arguably needs Kurdistan to be there as well. If it's not Kurdistan, what the hell else is going to be up there? Iran, uh, other opponents. So there is a, a weird symbiosis that goes on between the existence of the Islamic State and the furthering of the Kurdistan region. Kurdistan now faces threats. There are the threats of internal jihadists. There is a long history of uh, radical Islamist movements in the Kurdistan region. Indeed, you can trace some of the formative groups that went in to form Ansar al-Sunnah and that went in to merge with the different al-Qaeda groups around Zarqawi to Kurdish Islamist groups that began to form in the late 1990s in the East and Halabja, places like that. That culture, that tendency is still there. There is a, I think, a, I think the numbers of Kurdish jihadists in ISIS are underestimated and they could be coming back. But the bigger problem for Kurdistan is the internal fractiousness of the Kurdish political scene. It's always been their problem, of course. We can have many lectures on Kurdish infighting, whether it's in Iraq or elsewhere. But that is still the major problem for the integrity of the region going forward. I think I've talked this one out. Um, just to, um, uh, this is quite useful just to show, just to take this idea that Kurdistan is there, it's strong, it's powerful, and just to question that. Um, Kurdistan still remains a heavily divided region. The divisions of, 2000, uh, of the 1990s between Erbil and Sulaymaniyah still remain in the political culture of Kurdistan. So yes, Erbil is the capital. KDP dominates the government. But still, if you want to get anything done in Sulaymaniyah, 
you still do it with the PUK. There is a, um, a pushing out of authority from Ebil to Suleimania. There are questions, increased questions now about the legitimacy <laughs> of President or not President Barzani. I'm sure that those of you who have been following Kurdistan are aware of the, the um, presidential standoff in August when the president's term ended. To be honest, he, to be fair to him, he said, it is ending, I need, I need to be told what to do. He sent that letter to Parliament and nothing happened, so he was left on the throne, as it were. Um, but there is no idea about what happens next, and he is now being accused of clinging on to power at a time when his military forces did not perform terribly well against ISIS in the collapse of most, uh, especially in the defense of the Yazidis uh, and in the defense of Nineveh. So questions then about Barzani are thick and fast in the air. There's a reliance on other forces, whether there are the Kurdish forces or the US Air Force. And interestingly now, we can look at the performance of the PUK and start to see this difference again emerge in Kurdish politics. The PUK, with Taliban's health in decline, seem to be going into meltdown. However, they've had a relatively good war. Their Peshmerga fought somewhat more effectively. Um, their popularity, because they were a bit standoffish about dealing with the KDP, I think, has actually increased. So you've seen a change in the relative popularity and uh, positions of these parties. That again, perhaps it's not a great time for it to happen. It creates some instability in Kurdistan, and Kurdistan is not good at handling instability. And then we have the economy. There are budget questions. <laughs> Kurdistan is about 25 to 30 billion dollars worth of debt. Money owed to oil companies, money owed on public salaries. A monthly budget of 1.5, 1.6 billion that's not being serviced. The Kurdish economy is collapsing. There are questions of oil exports and legality of oil exports. Can they export enough as well? And of course, the ever-going problem of Kirkuk which has gone away right now, but will always come back to haunt them. And this is just rather a deeply scientific slide showing um, the Kurdish uh, political trajectories of Kurdish parties over the last few years, as I've seen them. Um, it's so scientific, I've done away with the need for any meaningful axes on this. Um, but, but I think this is quite useful. The, the KDP has gone into a decline. And the problem is, is that the KDP is not used to being in a popular decline. And this will create some sort of reaction from President Barzani going forward. And we see that. I mean, there, there is, I think, a degree of consternation right now about the relative position of the KDP. The, it's not a good place to be an Islamist, let's face it, in Kurdistan. Kurdistan is a deeply religious, religiously conservative in a personal sort of way. Um, there are many, the, the mosque building in Erbil has been huge, etc. The indicator is very high. But to be a political Islamist, publicly pronouncing it as a problem, in particular since the rise of ISIS. Um, so the relative popularity of the Islamists as political forces, and they are in government, uh, in the coalition government, have gone down. PUK has, has climbed, as I've said, but the problem with the PUK is that they have all this popularity, but they don't have a leadership. Their leadership is contested, which creates problems as well. Nobody, no singular leader can speak on behalf of the PUK at this point. And Goran the opposition movement that split from the PUK is, I think, all over the place, as my squiggly line shows. They, have a, they go into government with the KDP, they oppose the KDP, they oppose the PUK, they then go into alliance with the PUK, um, they 
uh, have problems in the, the parliamentary speaker, who is a Goran's parliamentary speaker, then gets involved in the presidential dispute. It, it's all going all over the place. The leader of Goran, Nashua Mustafa, is now in London, so the party is waiting for him to come back. And the moment, I think, for this opposition movement right now has been lost to a degree. I think perhaps there's a, a reunion coming of PUK and Goran, or a reunion of leftist forces in Kurdistan. But I think, even though I can, we can question the scientific basis of this, this um, slide, I think it does depict what's happening quite well. So stability, question mark. Um, there's been quite a few pieces of work recently about the stability of Kurdistan. You can tell that I'm not, I think it's not going terribly well. I don't think it's destined to collapse, but I think somebody has to get a grip of it at this point. But um, again, I'm not quite sure who that would be. What we're seeing now with the presidential standoff are different scenarios. President Barzani continuing. Maybe this will even be undeclared. He seems to be continuing quite happily. Will there be a drive to independence? If there is a two-year extension for President Barzani, will he have his eye on, will he basically say, yes, we can have lots of concessions to different parties in Kurdistan after the two years? But then, in effect, two years is a different world, and the Kurds start moving for independence. You know, all bets are off who can be president of Kurdistan when it is the Republic of Kurdistan, and it is no longer the Kurdistan region of Iraq. It's a new world. Is there a possible erbil Soleimaniya split coming? Well, the split never really went away. But recently, with the presidential standoff, there's been more talk again of, well, maybe uh, Bill is uh, Bill and Suleimaniya, Suleimaniya, and never the twain shall meet. And what would that mean for the fight against ISIS? And of course, what happens to Kirkuk? Kirkuk has a very powerful governor now, Nejmuddin Karim, who is from the PUK. But he presents himself as a Kirkuki. He wants a Kirkuk solution. It's not at all clear what happens to Kirkuk going forward. I think um, I'm pushing my time a bit, Eugene. I'll try to push on through. Um, the, the, the big Achilles heel for the Kurds and for the integrity and the, the idea of the Kurdistan region surviving is its economy. It has never had an, economy, an, an independent economy. It's always been dependent upon Baghdad, whether that's, Baghdad, whether that's the Iraq of the monarchy, of the military regimes of Saddam, of the UN All for Food program, where the dependency really kicked off, uh, or even since 2003, when they were taking in crates of cash shipped up from Baghdad on lorries. Even now, that dependency is showing. The Kurdish economy, as soon as Nur al-Maliki, then Haider Abadi, who's continued it, shut off the transfer of funds to the public sector in their bill, they didn't have a response for it. They tried to export more and more oil. But they haven't been able to generate the oil, have the transparency in place to bring the re revenue back and to distribute it equitably to get over these economic problems. And until they have an answer for their economic issues, then the idea of being independent from Iraq is just a fiction. They could have the answer to that. Um, Minister Ashdi Harami, the Minister of Natural Resources, will be speaking in London next week. He normally gives quite a robust, robust account of of the greatness of Kurdistan's oil resources and what the future holds. Um, but it hasn't yet really happened as the Kurds said it would. And we look at the debts. They are eye-wateringly high, $25 billion and growing, I think. Uh, you can't get an accurate figure. Um, they have a deeply swollen public sector. They have to now fund their expanded Peshmerga. 
They have to buy, largely buy their own weapons, as these are not coming up from Baghdad. This is a very diff difficult place for them. They also now have an immense number of refugees from Iraq and from Syria as well that will require funding. International oil companies are also receiving funds. Uh, they're being drip-fed funds. Now, this is a very serious problem for the KRG because if you want to see your oil output increase, you need international oil companies to do that. But an IOC is not a charity. They will want paying. But as soon as you start using your money to pay these rich IOCs, then you're facing popular discontent from these people that haven't been paid for the best part of a year. So the, the political economy of oil exports is going to hit the Kurds rather hard as well. Their infrastructure is really quite advanced. Um, this is a, a map showing the extent of the Kurdish oil industry. It's across the whole territory. On the whole, the quality of the oil is not great. Uh, it's not like in the south, but you know people are buying it. Turkey is very interested in the huge gas fields that are around Chamchamal and Suleymaniye uh, going forward. And just finally on this, relations with Baghdad. Um, and again, this is just an important one just to get through the idea that we cannot talk about Kurdistan, a Kurdistan position. So if we take the relations with Baghdad, between Erbil and Baghdad, if you want to classify call it that, they're really bad. I mean, between the KDP, between the KDP-dominated government and Baghdad, relations are really bad. They're driven with deep suspicion, um, going back to, certainly to Nuri al-Maliki, uh, but Barzani's relationship with Ibrahim al-Jafari went much better. And there's always been, culturally within the KDP, a deep animosity towards Baghdad. In the PUK, it's a little bit different. They are far more engaged with Baghdad. They find it easier to talk the talk of Iraqi nationalism with their Arab counterparts. They've had a long history working with the different Shia parties, and especially ISKI, but also the others as well. So you get a different approach going on on the question of independence. So you won't really hear many senior PUK people talking about the practicalities of independence, whereas you'll hear that more often with the KDP. You start to hear about them talking about finding a way forward in Iraq. So we, this is a, it's a big issue when you're starting to talk about putting together governments and national unity and finding a common Kurdistan position when they are actually still very, very, uh, and in very different starting points. Right now, Abadi and Barzani sort of have each other by the throat. Abadi cannot order an attack on Kirkuk or anything as, as crazy as that or drag the Kurds in willy-nilly. He doesn't have the military force to do it and he's got other issues to deal with. Barzani also cannot simply declare unilateral independence principally because the Americans don't want him to, uh, but also he is dependent upon Baghdad for airstrikes, for a degree of economic support, and he won't want to be seen as the one breaking away from Iraq. So they're caught in this peculiar embrace at this point. It becomes extremely complicated by the question of oil and gas, and this has sort of gone away recently, uh, but it will come back again with Kirkuk. The Kurds are exporting oil through Chehan, through... Um, Fish, um, through Zako into Chehan, from their fields, and you can make the case that constitutionally they're allowed to do this. The question then arises about what's happening to the oil from Kirkuk, because these are the fields that belong to the government of Iraq, but these are now being routed 
through Kurdistan as well. Kurdistan says that this is legitimate. They need money to fight. They need money for their people. And no one's arguing with them at this point. But I guarantee, if ISIS were to go, very soon after, there would be some accountants from Baghdad wanting to know where the money has gone from the oil that has been exported from Kirkuk. And that, that, that will come quite quickly. Right. We'll move on to Baghdad Basra. This is not going to be quite as long. Um, just to start off with some basic facts here, the, the, Baghdad Basra is a do, we, we are now dominated by the Shias. There. I mean, there is no other way of putting it. We have to dispel with the niceties of, of um, civic Iraqi nationalism, Shiism, political Shiism, Shia identity, the vision of Iraq as a Shia country, it's all the rage in Baghdad Basra. We cannot escape that now. We can talk about why that came to pass. The causative factors of it are interesting, but the reality today is that Baghdad Basra is firmly part of the Shia world. Not dominated by Iran by any means. Certainly influenced, affected by Iran, I think is a better way of putting it. But the notion that Baghdad Basra is somehow now part of the same country as Mosul and Erbil, I think we have to start questioning. This has led, of course, to the heavy sectarianization of government. And this is sectarianization between the parties as well, or factionalization between the parties. Different parties control different ministries, different militias have different access to different sorts of resource. And what's particularly um, frightening, I think, about what's happening in Baghdad Basra is the division of power between the different militias themselves. Just because they are many different Shia militias doesn't mean that they all get on well with each other. Indeed, reportedly, when Qasem Soleimani was preparing the defense of Baghdad when everyone thought that ISIS were going to come steamrollering in, he had to be very careful where he put different militia units and making sure that he wouldn't put certain ones next to other ones because they were more likely to fight each other than fight the guys coming in. That's a very, very serious problem to deal with. From, this is very difficult. It's difficult to get really good research on this, but anecdotally at least, the view of the rest of Iraq from Baghdad seems to be changing. You would never previously hear the government of Iraq talking about even the federalization of the country, that was a dirty concept. But breaking the country, that was a big no-no. But now it, you sort of hear comments about why should we let our sons go up to Mosul and be slaughtered in the liberation of that town when those guys up there are doing nothing about ISIS? Why should we do that? Why don't these refugees who are camping out in Baghdad, why don't they go back and take their town? Why don't they go out of Kurdistan and do it? Why should we be doing that? And they've deep trauma from Camp Spiker and all of these other atrocities uh, that ISIS did. But that's becoming more and more apparent. There's also an economic dimension here, and it comes in with the Kurds. If the Kurds are wanting to pump dry Kirkuk, they're wanting to be economically independent, they want to set up what's being known as Little Kuwait up there, then that's fine, but we shouldn't be subsidizing them from Basra. We're sat on something far more valuable in Basra than, than all that rubbish stuff in Kirkuk. We should be keeping Basra oil for Basra, for the South and for the Shia. We could have a fantastic state if we didn't have to worry about all these idiots in Mosul and their bill. And it's becoming, that's becoming really, really quite attractive as an idea as well. Not, not across all of society and political elites by any means, but it's, it's there now in a way that it never was before. 
I think in that we've got to throw in, what does Iran want from this? And again, I think there's often an assumption that Iran, for some reason, wants to see Iraq continue in its integrated form as this powerful state on its western flank, uh, running from Zakho to Basra, um, and that they don't want to see all this fragmentation because that's bad for them, and usually citing the problem of the Kurds of Iran, which you know, Iran, through its own oppressive measures, has never really had a problem with the Kurds in Iran anyway. I'd just ask you to consider that from the perspective of, just, just consider it from the perspective of recent history. Surely the worst thing for Iran going forward, is, if history is to be our guide, is to have a powerful Iraq as your neighbor. Having a powerful Iraq under a strong leader, unified, has been nothing but a problem for Iran. If I, if I was an Iranian politician, I'd probably be thinking, yeah, let, let's, let's, let's see them fall apart. Let's see them fall into smaller groupings that are easier to control. The Kurds are loyal to Iran anyway. They sort of, PUK has always been very close and the KDP has had to be. Um, even some Sunni tribes have reached out to Iran. ISIS is just a problem that can go away. We'll deal with them in Syria, you know, and then we've got our friends in Baghdad, Najaf, Kabul, Basra, whatever. They don't exactly do what we say, but at least we can trust them. It makes a little bit more sense than thinking Tehran wants Iraq to succeed as it was. So I, I think there's a lot of domestic issues within Baghdad Basra that push towards further fragmentation. And I think there are also some regional issues as well that perhaps encourage it too. Just a few slides again. Um, I'm not quite sure why I put them up. This, this, is, this is following the... Uh, fatwa of Ayatollah Sistani to um, it was to uh, I, I can't remember the exact wording it was defend the country, defend the nation it was taken up as a fatwa to uh, as a sectarian fatwa to go and fight ISIS and you move very quickly from I mean these guys are I mean if you're ISIS seeing these guys mobilised then you'd be quite happy, you think yeah we'll, we'll, we'll that, that's quite good um, we'll, we'll, we'll take them on but then very quickly you move on to this lot which I think is a Sebal al-Haq which are extremely well-trained. These guys have been around for a long time, and we know the different leaders of the different Shia militias. They've often fought with the Americans. They've been trained by the Iranians. Extremely capable, but utterly brutal when it comes to fighting ISIS and taking retribution out on those that they think are perhaps with ISIS or could have done more against ISIS. Um, I'm not sure it's so accurate to say that these are just like the Shia ISIS, but that's how they're seen up in... Mosul. And, you know, perception is everything. If you're watching this from Mosul thinking the alternative with ISIS is this lot, and they're not like us, the politics of ethno-sectarianism become very stark and brutal. So I'm on my final two slides now. What, what can we be certain about, or what should we be brave enough to acknowledge? Um, certainly Iranian hegemony. Maybe it's too strong. Uh, Iranian influence, Iranian position in Baghdad Basra sectarianization of security across the ISF and the Shia militia. As I said before, the Shia militia is what is now important for the ISF in support, but we now see military forces fighting as Shia. They're going in largely under Shia balance, if we can say that, rather than Iraqi ones. I would say that Islamic State is now has moved. It's made the progression from being insurgent to political to being a social movement. And it's all of those things as well. It's not... It's not giving up on terrorism. It's still rather good at it. But it's 
got more strings to its bow, especially compared to ISI and AQI. I'll be a bit controversial with this, and I said it some time ago, so I will claim a great deal of prescience on this particular point. But the only way that you can actually con uh, control Islamic State is by pushing in Iraq or limiting in Iraq and limiting in Syria. And the only military force in Syria that has remote chance of doing that are the military forces of Bashar al-Assad. And even that's not terribly convincing. But the only power that has the interest, capability, entry point, and is politically able to support Bashar al-Assad is, of course, the Russians. And so you get to the very uneasy conclusion that if you want to really contain or even push back ISIS, then it has to be a Western alliance over in Iraq with Russia and Bashar in Syria, which does not come free of charge. I mean, you start getting into negotiations like that with Putin, they are negotiations that end in Ukraine, just to make this even more complicated, and I'm sure that's haunting, um, haunting military planners in, in, in the US at this point. Now, I'm not saying that that is a good idea or it will necessarily come to pass, but if you are watching this from Raqqa and you're trying to advise Abu Bakr on what the, if he, if he does a, a five-year plan or something, um, then, then this isn't actually looking all that bad. Okay, the Russians are creating havoc and Bashar is there and these Kurds are pushing around in Sinjar. But you start to look at the forces that could take Islamic State down or control it. It's not immediately apparent that this is ever going to happen sometime soon. And again, winning is perhaps simply surviving at this point. And just to emphasize, would you join Islamic State? I, mean, I don't want to get anybody convicted on the anti-terrorism legislation, but yes, I think you would. Um, I would say that many of you here would join Islamic State if you happen to be in that world at that time. Um, another point that we're saying about Kurdistan is a political reality, or uh, the different parts of Kurdistan are now political reality. Um, Rojava, Syrian Kurdistan, is there. It is not going away. It is getting stronger. Kurdistan region is there. The Turkish question is developing very quickly, uh, has developed very quickly in Turkey. Of course, the Kurds in Iran are quiet. That's a very different world. But in terms of Iraq and Syria in particular, the Kurdish reality is now going to be one that people who specialize in the Middle East going forward and the contemporary politics of the Middle East going forward will have to look at far more carefully than they ever did before. Iraq integrity is a historical story. That possibly goes down badly if you're speaking to a hall of Iraqis who are aged 40 to 60 that think such a statement is verging on the blasphemous. But I think we have to get to this point now of talking about Iraq's integrity, about Iraq as it was, as it was. In the Iraq of Saddam, the map of Iraq of Saddam that uh, went into 2003 onwards, is being, has been ripped apart. I personally don't see how this gets stitched again, stitched together again anytime soon, effectively. So what is uncertain? There's a lot of uncertainty here. We could carry on for another hour, sorry. Um, um, the Islamic State and internal workings. We, the analysts the world over, the people who really specialize in this, can't do the basic research on getting in there. Okay, you can do, you can stand back and uh, I listened to Ali Ibrahimi's presentation and it was extremely compelling, um, but clearly Ali cannot get 
to rack her, and I don't think she would want to. Um, but there's only so much you can do from the outside, and I think the whole question of the internal workings, of course, is critical. How does the state of the Islamic State work? What does the state actually mean in the Islamic State? And particularly the political economy. How do these flows work? How, how do things carry on working? What does it mean to be a citizen or a subject of the Islamic State? And I'm not sure the answer is necessarily one that, that, it, that, that would be that it's really awful. I think perhaps sometimes the answer is that it's marginally better than what it used to be. And as long as they maintain that marginal betterness, it's going to be really difficult to, to unpick. Um, what are the Turkish intentions to the Kurds and to the Islamic State? Of course, it's all sorts. When we start talking about Turkey and this, then it's, we're almost getting into the realms of a Tom Clancy book. Uh, do you, have you ever read Tom Clancy, Eugene? No? Okay, don't. don't it's, uh, it's not your cup of tea, I don't think. Okay, this is, this is Pulp Fiction, Heathrow Airport, spy thriller stuff. The intentions of Turkey to the Kurds, I don't think anybody really knows. They've changed so much from 2007 to now. Could they change again? Well... It's changed pretty drastically in Turkey towards their own Kurds in recent years um, because of the political um, machinations of the president. Um, so I think we have to look very carefully at Turkish engagement in this game, of course. That's stating the obvious. Iranian intentions to everyone. I mean, Iran remains an enigma, even though they're doing so much. But what is Iran's intentions towards Baghdad, towards the Kurds? Uh, towards a wider game in this post-agreement world that seems to be unravelling, seems not to be unravelling. Uh, Iran remains as confusing, perhaps as confused as it ever has been. Um, the possibility of catastrophic game changes. We've had one possibly already. I mean, Paris could be a catastrophic game changer. If another event like Paris happens, uh, Cameron will become even more um, bombastic in his statements about Islamic State. Obama will join in we could see Western forces drawn back in on the ground, back into Syria, back into Iraq, um, as a way of, in 2001 all over again. And that is a distinct possibility. Um, what is uncertain? Western policy. I'm really uncertain about what Western policy is. Is there a Western policy right now? Um, we hear a lot of very glib statements coming from Washington and London possibly less glib now from Paris, but about the need to destroy, degrade, remove IS, all of that, but without any real indication of what, how that would be done and how it would be done better than what happened previously. It still seems to be wishful thinking. Um, um, I wrote this just before Paris. What is the impact on the West of Islamic State attacks in Europe and the US? The Islamic State does move fast. Um, just before Paris, I was in Jordan, in Amman, speaking at an event there on the foreign fighter threat. And the feeling there, and the, the key terrorist speakers were Dan Byman from, and Bruce Hoffman from Georgetown. And the, the key feeling there was that Islamic State was focusing on the, home, uh, on the enemy at home. So trying to consolidate itself at home. And then it might turn its attention to the West uh, in a way that's the flip side of what Al-Qaeda did. Al-Qaeda wanted to attack the foreign enemy and then bring them at home and then they'll have everybody at home as well. They've changed that, arguably. They've gone now, for whatever reasons, to attacking their enemies, their far enemies, as well as their enemies at home. They move very fast. They change strategy, they change posture, they change position. They've done that since 2011, certainly, and we should expect them to continue to change their strategy, change their posture, change their actions. Not because I think they're reactive. I think they're, they're actually very well planned. 
And I think the danger is that Western countries don't have Western countries don't have a vision. They don't have a strategy and they don't have policies to implement that strategy to get to an end game about what they want to achieve in this game. Middle Eastern countries, I don't think, have that either. Perhaps Iran does, but you know they'll be working on a timescale of millennia. You know, it's not really worth bothering about. Um, but So if nobody has a, a vision or a strategy or policies, that's a real problem when your opponent does. And I think Islamic State does have a vision. It might be a crazy one, but they have a vision. They do have strategies. They've articulated those strategies very clearly. I think they're following them through, and we are the ones that are reacting, not them. I think that is a problem. And the very final slide, it really is now. I don't have scenarios for Iraq five to ten years on. It's futurology isn't my strong point. I tend to be really wrong when I start predicting what's going on. But I think most of us have been. Um, I think there are continued divergent trajectories. I think, if I have to take a punt on this, Islamic State remains. It becomes a pariah, maybe like Somalia, but I, I think it, it becomes something that is really quite unique. But I don't see it going away right now because I don't see what would make it go away. I think KRG, or the Kurd, accurately the Kurdistan region of Iraq, becomes accepted. Perhaps even if there is a move towards securing sovereignty, some states acknowledge its sovereignty as well. It may be contested, I'm not sure. Baghdad Basra continues, of course, as a de jure rump Iraq. I think there could be a ganging up on the Islamic State. Uh, Bill Baghdad Basra pushed into alliance by a new American government that decides that it must do something about this. In that scenario, the West engages fully, but this is not just an engagement from the air. I think by this point we snowball into the boots on the ground, and I think the only place that you can really start to do this is Mosul. I don't think Raqqa is a possibility. I think Mosul is where it starts going if this is a scenario that, that happens. Or the other alternative is the Islamic State continues to march. While we look at what's happening in Iraq and they may be losing territory around Beji and Ramadi and places, they still move really effectively in Syria. We hear constant Joseph Bahut, I think who has spoken here recently, talks very in very compelling ways about the threat to Lebanon we see already the threat to Libya. There are lots of places of expansion for, for Islamic State, and it's not just Iraq. The rampant attacks across Europe, of course, everyone's bracing themselves for what could happen. And the Middle East landscape becomes increasingly characterized by ethnic and sectarian um, cleavages. I think that's also beginning to happen. I'd like to finish on a positive note. I really can't. Um, I, I'd, ask you to admire my waistcoat or everything I put on specially for, for this event. Um, the, there is, I, I can't see anything remotely optimistic to talk about when it comes to Islamic State and the, and the containing or the degrading or the removing of it. I see the future of Iraq as being extremely complex and difficult um, going forward, including what the high points are as well. The Kurdistan region is not going to have an easy pathway going forward and will have many problems uh, for Western powers to engage with as well. But I think we're looking at a fundamental reconsidering, re, not a redrawing of the map, that sounds wrong, but a, a reconsideration about what Middle East political life and how Middle East politics will be conducted in the future. Whether we talk about it in terms of the states that are there and will probably continue to be there legally, or whether we talk about it in terms of key regions, key cities, 
key militias, key political actors, networks. I think there are going to be new um, non-state ways of talking about Middle East politics that will become more powerful, uh, more accurate in the next five to ten years than perhaps we've been used to in the previous five to ten.